Okay, well, if you got your Bibles with you today, you can go ahead and be turning to Acts chapter number 6. Acts chapter number 6. So we're in a, a study following the, uh, the growth of the church, the beginning and the growth of the church uh, throughout the book of Acts. We said from the, the start of this study, Acts is a transitional book. It's showing us uh, transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament, uh, because honestly, uh, if you you look at the Gospels, we, t- we, we put them in the New Testament, and rightfully so, but we find that in the, New, or excuse me, in the Gospels, they're still operating under the law. They're still in the uh, Old Covenant, if you will, and that hap- that's still the case up until Jesus dies, until the final sacrifice is offered once and for all, and uh, he goes away and he leaves his apostles behind uh, to carry forth the work. And they are indwelt of the Holy Spirit. They are sent out into the world. And from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2, we find the Spirit indwells them. Uh, They begin speaking and uh, preaching boldly, proclaiming the truth of the gospel. People get saved. The church is formed. It starts growing. It starts having an impact and effect on the region round about there. And at the same time, they are uh, gaining resistance and uh, I guess you can kind of see a little bit of a parallel between where we've been preaching at on Sunday, where we've been teaching, because as Jesus was growing in his ministry, the resistance grew as the disciples uh, were continuing in their ministry, and as it was growing, and as the church was growing, the resistance grew. You see that parallel between the two of them? So it lets us know they were doing something right, right? But anyway, as the resistance was growing here, uh, they continue to lean upon God. They continue leaning on the Holy Spirit. And each time that we see them making strides, we see successes, we see good things happening, it's immediately followed by a time of persecution, a time of trial, a time of testing. Because we know that there is an adversary, the devil, that goes about seeking whom he may devour. He's not happy that the church was growing. He's not happy that the gospel is going out. He's not happy that people are being saved, that lives are being transformed, that things are uh, happening at that time. And so he's raising all sorts of forms of resistance against them. He's causing the religious leaders to persecute them, to threaten them, to beat them, to cast them into prison, right? And that was some of the things that they were most afraid of whenever they were uh, still following Jesus before his death, right? Peter denied the Lord three times because he was afraid of what they are now going through and they are rejoicing about. It's amazing, right? The difference that it makes whenever the Holy Spirit is working through them and they are following after and seeking after uh, after the Lord, right? And so we see these things happening. And um, just as a, a bit of a side note, uh, there is this pattern all the way through Scripture Whenever God's doing things, the enemy's going to be opposing. Whenever you're seeing successes in your life, whenever you're making strides in your life, when you're seeking God, when you're seeing him work in your life, there's also going to be opposition that arises. That just comes with the territory. We see it back in Elijah whenever he was on top of the mountain with the prophets of Baal. Huge victory, right? Huge spiritual breakthrough, if you will. And what's it followed by? It's followed by him in the depths of depression, in a cave Uh, essentially asking for God to take his life. I was listening to a preacher this week, and he was talking about Elijah, and he said Elijah was used to getting his prayers answered. Mm -hmm. I never really thought about this. 
He was used to getting his prayers answered. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed that it would rain. It rained. He was used to getting prayers answered. He had a boy that died and rose from the dead. He was used to getting prayers answered. So whenever he says, God, take my life away, mm. he was used to getting his prayers answered. He was expecting God to strike him dead. God brings him up on the mountain, brings the, the rushing wind and all, all those things by. He was expecting for God to strike him dead. And God says, I'm not through with you yet, right? Yeah. And so back to what I was originally saying is after times of triumph comes a time of testing. Mm -hmm. And God is working through this. And if we don't keep our eyes on the Lord through it, we're going to have defeat. We're going to back away. We're going to fall away rather than seeing it through the testing and through the trials and see the victory on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. Because the times of testing brings strength, right? Right. And I'm not saying that we need to be masochistic in some way that we're seeking out uh, times of trial and testing like we like misery and hardship. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the Christian life has seasons. It has cycles. It goes through these times and you'll have mountaintops, you'll have valleys. Expect them. But your circumstances may be up and down, but you don't have to be because God is the same yesterday, today, forever. You can remain constant regardless of what your circumstances are. And so anyway, that was all free. Going back to what we were talking about here. <laughs> so what we saw last week was that they had uh, arrested the disciples, cast them into prison, uh, and were seeking a way to try to kill them. They killed Jesus. Now they're going to kill his followers. And in this, they remained steadfast and firm. They continued to preach and to teach the word. Uh, the angel lets them out of prison. They go back doing what they were doing to begin with, right? They're not deterred. And then whenever they are rearrested, now there's fear. The tables have changed a little bit. There's fear in their captors rather than in them. They are seeing that God is for them, so who can be against them? And they end up beating them, and they go away rejoicing and praising because they were seen worthy to suffer shame for Christ's sake. They said, we're following in the footsteps of our Savior. You know, what better could we do? And uh, we saw the advice of uh, Gamaliel whenever he said, put them forth a little bit, leave them alone, and let God worry about them. And so we saw in that, that our priorities in our ministry and our lives, that it's not that we are to go about and correct every falsehood, that we're to go about and challenge every false doctrine or every false teacher or every false religion. It's not for us to set things right, set things straight, but instead we continue to preach the Word of God we continue to stand on the truth. We continue to speak to those who are open to hearing, and we don't worry about the rest of them. We let God sort them out, right? Because if we make our entire life and ministry about setting everyone straight, about correcting every false doctrine, about challenging every uh, every evil group or every evil, if we do that, then we are going to completely get sidetracked. We're going to completely miss the mark, Okay. And so with where we're at today in chapter number six, we're going to find that there is a, a temptation for them to get distracted, and there is also a temptation for them to be disunited, okay? Because there is power in unity. Uh, Jesus prayed to God before he left this earth. He said, may they all be one as we are one. There is this, this uh, desire for us to be unified as believers and Satan has always sought to uh, fracture the believers, mm -hmm. to separate them, to, to bring them apart, uh, whether it be on the, the whole, whole scale of uh, Christianity, and Christianity is very fractured today. 
so many different groups and belief systems and all of this. And that's okay. There's diversity. That's because we're human, right? Right. And we don't necessarily need to be picking everybody apart and figuring out who's right and wrong. Uh, we need to be knowing what is right. Right. Okay? Uh, but also, even amongst us as believers, Satan still desi- desires for us to be fractured. He still desires for us to be separated and pulled apart. Yeah. And even in times where we're talking about with difficulties and trials, one of your first reactions is to separate. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because guess what? If the wolf can get a sheep off to itself, if the wolf can get the sheep off by themselves away from the rest of the flock and away from the shepherd... They're much more susceptible. They're much more in danger. That's one reason why the shepherd is willing to leave the 90 and 9, leave that group together to seek out the one because that one is in much more danger than that 90 and 9. And he leaves it immediately. He's going out and seeking for it because the longer it's away and the longer it's away from the shepherd, the more danger that it's in. Mm -hmm. Right? And so this is some of the dangers that we're going to be seeing as we look at this chapter. So let's go ahead and, and read Uh, Acts chapter 6, we'll read the the first seven verses here. It says, And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied. Now, earlier the church was being added to daily. Now it says they were multiplied. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know about you, multiplication accrues a lot quicker, doesn't it? I would much rather my bank account be multiplied than added to. (laughs) Okay? But anyway... And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a number, or excuse me, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so there is a a challenge that occurs here. There is a great danger that rears its head, but they deal with it wisely. And because they deal with it wisely, we see that things go well, right? They are able to see the church grow. They're able to see it multiply. But remember, this is the very infantile, very early church. We saw there was one time that 3,000 were saved, another time that 5,000 were saved. Uh, They were added to daily. They were multiplied. We could estimate there's probably somewhere around 25,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time. The church is still almost entirely made up of Jews as far as we can tell. The gospel hasn't went out to the Gentiles They are consolidated there in that one place. They are growing. They are being discipled, right? But they are learning how to live together in this new walk, in this new community, because Christianity is transcending all all social circles. Not ethnicities yet, that will occur, but all social circles. 
every stage of, uh, of society here. It encompasses the rich. It encompasses the poor. It has the outcasts. It has the ones who had given up on religion and have been discarded. It has those who were part of religion and have walked away from it. We see here the priest getting saved. And so you have from all different classes, all different strata of the Jewish society are coming together. You're going to have masters. You're going to have slaves, right? All of that coming together and learning how to walk together in unity and in harmony. Now, that's going to take the power of God to happen, right? Because you take a mixed segment of society, bring them together. There's all sorts of prejudices. There's all types of uh, stereotypes. There's all kinds of different things that would cause division and would cause people to be uh, at odds with one another, right? And so they're learning how to deal with this. And so the church comes to a, a speed bump. It comes to a barrier, a problem that's arising here. Because as they're going about ministering, the disciples are, or excuse me, the apostles, forgive me if I use those terms interchangeably, okay? Disciples is the whole group of believers that are being discipled. The apostles are the 12, okay? And so anyway, the apostles are going about and they are ministering in the word. They are trying to figure out this new role that God has given them. They're trying to figure out how to navigate being pastors of this group of people. And it's a massive group of people, and they're trying to get around and disciple all these people. And it comes to their ears that there is murmuring. There's murmuring. Murmuring's dangerous. You realize that? What's murmuring? Whining and complaining. There's some murmuring. But anyway, murmuring is that, that quiet discontentment that goes between uh, between groups and individuals, right? It is staying under wraps. It is behind the scenes, and it is destructive because it's not anyone bringing it up openly so that it can be dealt with. It's being kept quiet. It's being kept, and it grows like a cancer, and it goes from person to person, and we find this uh, in the study that we've been doing on Wednesday night in Exodus and in the Old Testament that the Jews repeatedly fall into murmuring. Large groups of people, they're discontented. They start murmuring around. They start uh, whispering between one another. And rather than bringing up the issue to someone that can do something about it, they keep it quiet, keep it under wraps, and just allow it to increase and to escalate, right? Yeah. And so that's what was going on in the church at this time. And what they were murmuring about was that the Grecian widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. Okay? I said that the church was Jewish, right? But you had two different groups within the, the Jewish church, and you had the Grecians and you had the Hebrews, or the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Okay? Just for the sake of alliteration. Okay? So you had the Hellenists and you had the, the Hebrews, and what the difference was is the Hellenists, the Greeks, were the ones that had adopted the, the Greek culture. Okay, So they were Jews that spoke Greek. They were Jews that had welcomed the, the different influences of the Greek culture. And then you had the Hebrews. They were the ones who still spoke Hebrew. That still held to the Jewish culture. That still done things by all the old ways, and they would have been your traditional. Okay, if we bring that to uh, modern day context and look at Irish, 
uh, in Ireland, you have some communities that are Gaelic, right? You have some that are keeping those traditional ways alive, and then you've got others that are extremely multicultural. Okay? And so you have that going on even here today, and that gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what would have happened, because guess what? Amongst the Hebrews, they would have seen the Greeks almost as being sellouts and compromisers, right? They are abandoning our way of life. They are not speaking our language anymore. They are not living according to our culture. They're dressing like the Hebrew, or excuse me, like the Greeks. They are uh, entertained by the things of the Greeks. They're doing all these different things in the methods of the Greeks. They had left Israel many times, and they had went to Greek communities. They went to, to places of that they had been influenced by the Greek cultures, okay? But most of the time, the, the Hebrews had stayed in Israel. They were the ones who were uh, keeping their culture alive, who were faithful to their... And they, they saw themselves almost as being a little bit superior, right? And maybe the, the Hellenists would see themselves as being a little bit superior because they got away from home and they see more of the world and they had been educated more than these ones that's never left Israel, right? You see how that goes? Have I lost anyone? Okay, so we can kind of draw connections, parallels with our with some of the situations that we've been through in our lives. And so in this, the leadership within the early church would have tended to be much more Hebrew, okay? It would have been the Jewish Jews that would have been in leading. And we found out in previous chapters that people were bring, they were being extremely generous. They were bringing uh, money. They were bringing possessions and all these different things and giving them to the church so that it could be distributed to those who were in need. Okay? And so the Hellenists, the, the Greek believers, were saying, we are being left out. We are being, our widows are being mistreated in this. And we have no idea, it doesn't say, if it was intentional, if it was malicious. Because it may have just been that the, the separation between these cultures caused them to have this natural, natural divide, okay? You're going to uh, be much more attentive to the needs of those who are immediately surrounding you, those that you are uh, associating with, those that are in your circle, right? Right. And so it could have just been that uh, within that huge group that the, the, the Greek believers just were maybe a little bit to the outside of the circle of the ones that were in charge of the distribution, right? It could have been malicious. It could have been like, I don't like the Greeks. Forget them. We're going to take care of ours first. We don't know. We don't know that was intentional. But there was murmuring, and the, the, the Greek believers, the Hellenists, were saying, we're being left out. We're being mistreated. They like them better than they like us. They're getting a better portion than what we're getting. Our widows are being neglected while theirs are flourishing. And so there's something wrong here, and there was murmuring. And as I said, the disciples were busy, or the apostles were busy, right? Right. But it came before them. They heard that this was going on, and they said, we have to do something about this because this could possibly 
divide the church. It could possibly tear it apart. It can destroy what God is doing here. And so we need to, as the saying goes, we need to nip this in the bud. Yeah. Right? And so in this, we find how the church deals with conflict, yeah. how it makes decisions, how it goes through and handles these problems. Right. And there are several great lessons that we can learn from this, and I hope to be able to bring them out today. Okay, But anyway, one of the first ones that I see in all of this is that the disciples were doing their best, or the apostles were doing their best, right? They had a lot going on. They couldn't see everything going on, and it had to grow to the place that it came to their attention. And whenever it did, they acted, right? And so as the apostles, as the leaders, as the pastors, they had to be attentive. They had to be paying attention to what was going on. They had to be willing to act. But at the same time, the believers also needed to be willing to come out and, and see the, the danger in these things yeah. and seek to get it taken care of quickly, right? right? And it's a lesson for us as believers as well because for me— as the pastor of the church, I don't know what's going on in everybody's individual lives. I don't know what, what you're irked at. I don't know what you're murmuring about. I don't know what's your concern in your heart. I don't know how things are going on unless it gets bad enough that it comes to me. Yeah. And heaven forbid it gets bad enough that it comes to me. But here's the thing. Uh, whenever things are going wrong, then we as a family of believers need to be willing to communicate right. and see the value of working through it and we need to prioritize unity. Now, I'm going to say this. I always say this when we talk about unity. Unity is not uniformity. We've covered that this church, even though it was all Jews at that time, was incredibly diverse even within it being Jewish, right? And so unity is not uniformity, but they wanted to guard and protect this unity. And so there was something that had to be done. And so for us, we need to bring up these issues. We need to deal with them and not just let them smolder, not just let them go on. And so as a church, if we're wanting to see the church grow, we're wanting to see it go forward, we're wanting to see it last, this needs to be a priority as we go forward whenever things do arise that we get them taken care of, right? right. So that's a, that's a small lesson, but that's an important lesson, right? Another thing that we find as we, we look at this here is that if we're not careful— Differences quickly divide, but they don't have to. Remember I said that we are in unity, but not uniformity. There is diversity, and differences can divide, but they shouldn't. Right. Not if they're handled properly. Okay? Um, and so it says that whenever it came before them, they called the multitude of disciples to them. They called everyone together, and they said that it's not meet that we... Uh, let me see here. It's not reason, excuse me, that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I want to say clearly the disciples or the apostles are not saying that serving tables was beneath them. Okay? Don't interpret it that way. They're not saying, hey, we're doing something important. We don't have time to mess with that. But instead, they are saying that as the apostles, their most important role, the thing that they needed to prioritize, the thing that was important for them to do was they needed to be laboring in the Word and in prayer. And so this is guarding against distractions. We need to prioritize. We need to determine what is the most important in our life because the devil will try to distract us. Right? 
He will try to distract us. And so the disciples, or the apostles, excuse me, I said I've used these interchangeably, right? Not to confuse you. But in each of our lives, we need to determine what our top priority and our top purpose is and concentrate on that, okay? Because there will be things that are going to distract us. Uh, for us as parents, that should be a top priority. There are many good things that we could get involved in, but if we neglect being a parent, then we're in trouble. If we're a husband or a wife and we neglect our marriage, we might be going out and doing great things for the Lord. We might be going out and preaching and, and seeing all kinds of things happen, but if we neglect our first ministry of our family, then we're in trouble, right? We need to, to realize what's most important because, see, here's the thing. The disciples or the apostles said, we are the only ones that can fulfill this purpose. We are called, we are chosen. Jesus has specifically given us this task and we must be the ones that do it, right? But anyone could oversee the distribution of the, the finances to the widows. Right. Anyone could, as they say here, serve tables. Right? Right. You know what? Anyone can work your job. Right? Anyone can even engage in ministry. You know, if I, there's lots of people who've lost their families, lots of pastors that's lost their families because they put their ministry above their family. You know, there's a lot of people that can do what I'm doing, but I am the only one that can be her husband and their father, yeah. right? Do you see how that puts things in perspective? Anyone can do your job, but only one, only you can be a parent to your children. Only you can be the husband or wife to your spouse, right? And only you can fulfill the purpose that God has for you. And you can get distracted by a lot of lesser purposes, oh, yeah. by a lot of other things. You can fill, you can pour your entire life into things that are good but don't honestly matter. And you can be you can be completely tied up in the good things and miss out on the great things. Right. Okay. And so with this, we see that the disciples. There I go again. The apostles. <laughs> I'll get this straightened out eventually. If not, you. You all straighten it out for me. But anyway, we see that the apostle said, we could do this task. We could get involved in this administrative role. We can go out and work the food bank. We can make sure the widows are taken care of. We can uh, go through all of these different things. But the more time that we're devoting to that, the less time we're actually discipling new converts. The less time we're actually able to put into our study, the, the more our prayer life is being neglected the more our spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of the believers that God has entrusted us with, uh, the more those things are being neglected. So we've got to make a decision here. And that's where leadership comes in, right? I'll tell you, I'm not a good leader. Okay, I'm not good with leadership. And you all probably know that by now. And so you all have to help me out with that. But anyway, for them as leaders, they had to make a decision. They had to draw a line somewhere. And so whenever this came up, they said, if we don't do something then we're going to have a problem. If we don't do something, the churches will be fractured, the unity is going to be lost, and so it's up to us to do something. Yeah. And we're not 
just going to take on this responsibility, continue to pack it on our shoulders and just add to our weight so that we're doing a lot of things, but none of it are we doing well. We're going to say that there are plenty of other people within the church that are more than capable of taking care of this. Okay. And so in this, we're finding that there isn't a ruling class within the church. We're finding that there's not this idea of uh, the, the church just being there to be spectators, but we see that there's places for everyone to be plugged in at. There's different positions. There's different things that each person can do. And so he said, there's plenty of people who could take care of this. So why don't we delegate, right? And this is the, the start. This is the, the creation, if you will, of the office of a deacon, okay? Deacon is a servant, okay? And so they said to the, all of the, the multitude there, we realize there's been some murmuring. We realize there's some people feeling like they're left out. We don't want them to feel like they're left out. We don't want anyone to be neglected. We want this matter to be handled, but we have to give ourselves to prayer and to preaching and studying and things. So this is what we propose that we do. We want you, the multitude of disciples, right? Look you out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the disciples, the apostles aren't saying, okay, we've got to fix everything. We've got to do everything. Instead, they are saying, hey, we're going to put this one on you. We're going to entrust you and the Holy Spirit and the power of God because they weren't God. They weren't the head of the church. Jesus was. And so they said, uh, we're not magnanimous. We're not the ones who are responsible for everything. So we're going to give you this responsibility. We're going to delegate this responsibility to the multitude. And now putting it back in context that the 12 are talking to the 25,000. That's a crowd, isn't it? They said, look out among you. Someone within our ranks, someone within our group, look out among you. Seven men, and he gives the qualifications. He says, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom. Can you imagine 25,000 people settling on seven men? God had to be in that one, right? (laughs) Yeah. But that tells me something else about the early church. Because if these 25,000 settled on seven men... As is the case with any group, there are going to be certain ones that are going to come to a place of prominence. There's going to be certain ones uh, who are going to be uh, more visible, more well-known amongst the group. There are going to be those that stand out, those who are more effective, those who are maybe more gifted. And so as these 25,000 are considering, now it doesn't mean that all 25,000 are going to give an opinion or cast a vote, but amongst those, there are going to be those who are more involved, right? And amongst the ones that were more involved, they narrowed it down and they said, well, amongst our group, you know, the ones that have really been showing that they are men of God, that the Holy Spirit's working in, that they're wise, you know, Philip stands out. I think Philip would be a good one. Okay? Well, he's one of them. Okay, well, everybody agrees on Philip. And they keep thinking about it, considering it, talking about, hey, if they're going to murmur about something, they might as well be murmuring about something good, right? Mm-hmm. And so they pick out 
Philip, they pick out uh, Stephen, they pick out uh, Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas. And so they come through and they, they present this to the disciples, the apostles, and they say, hey, guys, we've been considering this and everyone is in agreement. All of this huge group has come to a consensus. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? That these seven men would be a good fit for this position. These are ones who are honest. We can trust them with this financial responsibility. They are wise. They are able to discern what's right and what's God's will. Uh, they are. We can see they're full of the Holy Ghost. We can see that they're working, that they're laboring. And so they have proven themselves. We want these seven men to be in this position. And so who is it that brought those seven men forth? The multitude, the church, right? And they brought it forth to the leadership, to the apostles. And so all of this was going back and forth. Uh, verse 5 said, whenever, whenever the disciples gave them this uh, suggestion, I guess you could say, whenever they said, this is going to be a solution to our problem, verse 5 says, the saying pleased the whole multitude. It wasn't given as an order or a command. They said, hey, how about we do this? And everybody said, that sounds like a great idea. They looked out, they searched out, they found the seven men. And verse six says, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God was increased. So the leadership says, well, let's see here. The church says there's a problem. The leadership says, how about this for a solution? They say, that sounds great to us. And they act on it. And they start putting forth the men who can fill these positions. And after they put forth these men, the disciples pray over them, put their hands on them. Now, this isn't imparting any special spiritual giftings or anything like this. This is identifying with them, putting their stamp of approval on them, saying, we agree with this, that we are with them, we are on board with this decision. Okay? And they put them in that, and everybody is happy. Right? The problem is solved. The crisis is averted. The unity is restored. And the word of God is increased. And isn't that the goal? Yes. It's the goal. And so we see how this works. And so how does this apply to the church today? How does this apply to us uh, today? We find that the church, first and foremost, is a theocracy. God is the head, right? Yes, there is leadership within the church. There is a pastor over the church, right? But he is not the be-all and end-all. He is not the authority over the church, right? I can lead, I can guide, I can make suggestions, I can help things along, but in the end, I don't... If the apostles didn't say, this is what we're going to do, and this is how it's going to be done, and you have to do it this way, then I don't see where I would have the power if the apostles didn't, right? And so it brought in the, the church working together as a body. Can you imagine that? As a body to solve the problem that was at hand. And this is where we have, and this is where it's different as far as a, I don't want to get into Baptist distinctives and stuff, but this is where the Baptist church is different than other churches because it does have the church working as a body. And we see that the members have different tasks, different jobs. It's not a hierarchy. It's not uh, It's not 
driven in this type of a way. Okay? But instead that the body is working together for the health of the body. Seeking unity of the body. Okay? And as we look at these men, something interesting to me as I was studying this out, you notice these seven men that were chosen. There's something uh, interesting about them, and you never realize it unless you actually uh, study it out a little bit further, okay? All of these seven men have Greek names. What was the problem that was being addressed? Greek Okay. So the Greek widows were being neglected. And so in a an act of uh, a love of humility, right? The seven men that they chose were actually Greek. Or at least able to speak Greek. They, they were named a Greek name, right? They were named a Greek name. So that lets us know that, oh, okay, if they're going to be solving this problem, they need to be able to understand this problem. That gives us maybe a little bit of an idea about what the problem was originally. Hey, the Greeks are being neglected because the Jews can't understand them. Yeah. So we need some Greek-speaking deacons that are able to serve in this and be able to deal with this issue at hand, right? And so anyway, that shows a little bit of wisdom. It shows a little bit of humility that the Jewish believers were willing to put forth Greeks into this position to see that it was handled properly. Okay? And even one of them, but something interesting that jumped out to me as well, you notice the last one, Nicholas, was a proselyte. You know what that means? He wasn't Jew by birth. He wasn't born a Jew that he had converted to Judaism. And so he was a Gentile that became a Jew that became a Christian. And so one of the very first deacons in the almost entirely Jewish church was not a Jew by birth. They're breaking down all kinds of barriers, all kinds of walls here, aren't they? And so this is what they're doing here. And the disciples put their stamp of approval on this. The word is going out. The church is growing. People are being blessed. Good things are happening because they dealt with the problem. They were all involved, right? Right. They all took part. There were those who were able to do things, and they stepped up and they did them, right? Right. And so the unity was preserved. They didn't get distracted by things that weren't important. By the way, something interesting in this as well is the disciples, or excuse me, the apostles said it's not, uh, I always say this wrong, uh, it's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So these seven men that they chose, does that mean that their only role was serving tables that, that were serving? Remember it said they were full of the Holy Ghost. They were men of wisdom. They were of good report. And what we find going on of these seven men, we know two of them. Okay? We know two of them. What's the two that we know? Stephen and Philip. What do we know about these two? Okay? So Stephen was the first martyr, and he was preaching, right? 
And so he was still preaching. He was still being a witness, even though that wasn't technically his job. Okay. What do we know about Philip? He preached in the desert. Okay. He preached in the desert. He was the one that went down and saw the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. So one of the first Gentiles, Ethiopian, believed as a result of the preaching of the deacon, Philip. So amongst these deacons, amongst these uh, table waiters, these servants, right, we find the first martyr and the first missionary. Pretty cool, isn't it? What about the other five? You know anything of Parmedius and Nicanor and Timon or Timon or whatever his name is? I, I hate to call him Timon because I always think of Pumbaa. Yeah. For those who watch cartoons and stuff with Lion King. But that's how his name's spelled, Timon. Timon. Uh, but anyway, we don't know anything about them. But you know that follows a pattern that we find all throughout Scripture. Because the Bible is the Bible's not about and Christianity is not about uh, those who are prominent. It's not about those who are famous. How, how much do you know about the 12 disciples? The 12 apostles. We know about Peter, right? He was the apostle to the Jews. Okay. We know about John, wrote Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, all those things. Uh, we know about him. We know about, we know a little bit about Matthew. We know that he was a tax collector, but what did he do after Jesus left? <laughs> know anything about him? History and tradition tells us a little bit about him. Okay. Uh, we know about James. James was the first, first one to die, first martyr, right? But that's about all we know about him. We know they died. Do you know much about any of them? What about Judas, not Iscariot? <laughs> Simon the Zealot? Nathaniel? I doubt he did anything. No. <laughs> we don't know that much about him. Does that mean they did nothing of significance? No. What about the other five deacons? Does that mean they did nothing of significance? No. But that's never been God's priority. That's never been what he has uh, focused on. It's never been about what they've accomplished or being in the spotlight or having their name up in lights. But instead we find that God continually is using people. Some will be prominent, some won't. Not everyone will have a position on the, the front lines, if you will. But there is going to be a diversity of, of ministries, some will be more visible than there will be others. Right. I'm going to be interested to see one of these days, whenever we get to heaven, what the difference is between the way that we perceive things and the way that God perceives things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be interested one of these days, whenever the rewards are handed out, or whenever it's revealed what impact each life has had. I have a feeling those who are less well known are going to have a greater impact than some of the ones that are more well known. You realize that? And so we might know what happened with a few of the apostles. We might know what happened with Philip and with uh, Stephen. But one of these days it's going to be revealed what happened with the rest of them. Right. And it's going to be interesting if their ministries uh, had greater fruit mm -hmm. than the ones that we know about. So how does that come down to us? It's not a matter of 
prominence of importance or how uh, how we view the things that we are doing for God. Okay? It's not about those who are well-known, who have their name up in lights that uh, have uh, preached great messages or have been uh, uh, well-traveled or well-spoken of or famous amongst Christianity. That's not what it's about, is it? But instead, what it's about is we serve the Lord, we seek to do His will, and if we are obedient to Him, if we do what He has sent us here to do, then that is all that's required of us. That's all that, and we're going to hear well done one of these days. Our comparison isn't between us and someone else. I'm not measuring my ministry by Apostle Paul's. If not, I'm going to be incredibly depressed. Okay? But we do measure ourselves by, am I doing what God would have me to do? Am I doing what God would have Jacques to do? And am I doing what God would have me to do? And if I am, that's good enough. Whether you're an apostle or a deacon or some unknown person whose name is never even mentioned. Because remember, we're breaking this down a little bit with numbers, right? You got the 12 apostles. You got the seven deacons. You have the 25,000 probably in the congregation that is participating, that is seeing the gospel going out, that is talking to their friends, their relatives, their neighbors, to all these people they're coming in contact with. They're seeing people saved. They're bringing people to church with them. They're doing all of these things. We don't have a clue any of their names. Right? And so as a result of this, everyone is doing what God would have them to do. There is a unity. There is a focus on what is important. They're not getting distracted from their purpose, right? And they take care of the problems. They don't allow them to fester. They don't allow them to grow. They take care of them, uh, and they do it in a wise manner, right? And as a result, we find here in verse number 7, the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. It's interesting to me as we go through the book of Acts how there is a building that takes place, okay? Because at first, as I pointed out already, there's the idea that there was added to them daily, right? Then they were multiplying, right? And now as we're in verse number 7 of Acts 6, they've increased, and it says they multiplied greatly, Exponentially, right? And so what caused this multiplication? What caused this growth? Wasn't our modern tactics and our modern way of doing things, almost salesmanship philosophies and stuff like this? No. It was people prioritizing God and one another. They were taking care of one another. They were focusing on God and on the gospel. They were uh, attacking their problems head on. They were facing them. They were fixing them. And they were keeping their unity. They were keeping their focus. They were living out the gospel in the world in which they lived. And as they were doing that, people saw God in them. Mm -hmm. They spoke the word of God with authority. By experience, they said, this is what God has done for me. Right? And as a result, people were taking note of it. And they were joining into this. And they were saying, I want to be a part of that. And so many people were getting saved as a result. 
something interesting here at the end of verse number seven. And it says, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, this is what the religious leaders were afraid of, right? But who better to become converts? Who better to be saved than these priests? Because these would be the ones that were aware that the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. They were the ones that were aware of all the sacrifices and how Jesus fulfilled them. They were the ones that knew the scriptures, right? And if they were willing to put aside their pride and their desire for power and prominence, and they would take a good close look at the word of God, and they take a good close look at Jesus, and at all the things that were going on, they would have to come to the conclusion that this surely is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And a great multitude of the priests came to the faith as well. Now, we see that and we say, hey, that's a great thing. The priests are getting saved. But remember, Acts is a transitional book, right? And it is tracking the changes and it's tracking the, the happenings. It's tracking the problems within the early church. What was one of the problems that the, the early church faced? I know I didn't give you a lot to work with there to tell you the direction I'm going, did I? There was a lot of problems they faced, wasn't there? But one of the problems that they faced was getting away from Judaism. You start reading through the Apostle Paul's writings to the Gentiles. The Jewish believers were trying to force the Gentiles to accept Judaism and Christianity, right? They were trying to mix it all in together. And so, yes, we're glad that the, the priests are getting saved, but they're bringing the priesthood along with them. <laughs> They're bringing Judaism around with them. And now I don't want to put all the blame on the, the priests. I mean, they were Jews also. All the people were Jews, right? And so it was still keeping this foothold in Judaism. And that was a kind of a simmering problem for another time. As long as the church was made up all of Jews, they could continue to keep their Judaism and that Jewish identity about them. But God didn't come down for a Jewish church, right? He didn't come to establish a Jewish church. He didn't come down to make the Gentiles proselytes of Judaism. And we see that through Apostle Paul's writings. He, he has changed that completely. He has, uh, Judaism had its time and it had its purpose and it brought us to Christ, to his crucifixion. And now the veil is rent. The law has been fulfilled. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law came to fulfill it, right? He fulfilled the law, and he is now the fulfillment of all those things. And so as we're looking in this passage, Acts chapter number 6, they keep to what is important. Every man focusing on what God has called him to do, right? not getting distracted by the extra things, not taking upon themselves burdens that wasn't theirs to bear, spreading the responsibility amongst all folks, right? The church working together amongst the believers to sort out problems and to, to get through all these things, and all of them prioritizing, uh, prioritizing one another, Jesus Christ, and the gospel, okay? One last thing that I want to put in here, 
just for the fun of it. Okay, just for the fun of it here, I want to show that in this situation, as the early church is solving problems, there is one prominent person amongst the apostles that really there's silence about in this chapter. Who is that? Any idea? Who's things kind of centered around so far? Peter. Is Peter mentioned in this? Now the Catholic Church would say that Peter was the first pope. And that the pope has all the authority. And the pope would be the one making decisions and making decrees, making proclamations, right? Is Peter doing any of that? See, there's all these hierarchical systems that's been set up, not just within Catholicism, but in many different religions, that in some way it puts a pope, a power, a figurehead, someone in place of Christ. Okay? And if the early church was making decisions by those systems that they've put in place today, Peter would stand on the forefront, say, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. I'm choosing you, 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 and you. You're going to be my men. You're going to be my servants. You're going to do this job just the way that I tell you how to do it. Right? Is any of that going on there? There's no spotlight on Peter. Peter's not calling the shots. He's not making the decision. But instead, the apostles, all of them, are putting forth to the people a suggestion for how to fix the problem. The people all say, hey, that's great. We're on board with this. And they go about selecting the the uh, the deacons, right? And then the disciples just put their hands on it and say, okay, we agree with the decision you guys have made. Just put their stamp of approval on it, right? It's a big difference from the way that things normally work, isn't it? And so I believe this passage is very enlightening to us as believers for how the church is to function, how we're to solve problems, how we're to prioritize things, how important unity is. There's so many different things that we can learn from this passage, right? So with all that being said, does anyone have any comments, anything to add this morning, any questions, anything? I know I've been a little bit of everywhere, but hopefully you got something out of it. Anything in there that I missed? Okay. I knew you look like you're thinking. <laughs> I was thinking too. You mentioned about the these seven men that were chosen mm -hmm. not being originally Jewish. One of them wasn't. One of them. Could be any reason why? Because it seems like these problems of widows in the church was, was mainly for, for for Greeks widows. 
Mm-hmm. And then when they chose... Well, the Greek ones would have still been Jews, okay? They were Jews, but they uh, had adapted the Greek the culture. Greek, okay, great. And then on choosing these seven men, we, you mentioned that they, they are, it seems like mainly they coming from the same society that was, was, was mm-hmm. impacted with this, mm-hmm. with this problem. Why they didn't just choose uh, generally about them being Christians and say, okay, we are not going to emphasize people of certain of, of same culture or mm-hmm. same background to deal with these problems? Well, there's nothing that says that they intentionally made it that way. Okay? Yeah. The, the qualifications that were put out by the apostles was that they needed to be men of uh, honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom. Yeah. Okay? And then they they put it to the, the people to make the decision. And this is something I didn't mention as we were, as we were talking about, but I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up. But uh, one of the reasons why I believe that it's important to have everyone involved is that uh, all of the power isn't in one place, all of the decision-making isn't in one place, because one person is fallible, but God can work through the multitude to bring about his will and his purpose because each one is just a little portion, a little piece. Okay? And he can bring about his will through all these different individuals. And it's not that each individual is making uh, making their will, will be done, but God can make his will be done through all the individuals. And so we don't have enough information to say that they got together and they decided and said, okay, in addition to what the disciple or the apostles have said, we think they should also be uh, have a Greek background or speak Greek or have Greek names or whatever, but that's what ended up coming about. And so it could be that the people in uh, uh, in compassion or of uh, uh, humility or of wisdom said, okay, if the problem is dealing with the Greeks, we need people who are able to communicate with the Greeks. Maybe. Or maybe that just God moved these people you know, because he has a way of bringing bringing things to our mind, of steering our thoughts of God, and so it might just be that whenever he said, "Okay, these things," that God started moving in people's hearts and minds to bring the same people to their attention. It's like, yeah. okay, it, I, we continue hearing the same names, the same names. Why are they maybe God's there? I don't know, and I guess that's what I'm trying to get back to. Why it was that way, we have no clue. The Bible doesn't say, but we do know that their solution ended up being that all seven of these men had Greek names. So they're going to be better able to minister to those who have been uh, marginalized because they can communicate with them at least. And so whether it was a matter of intention or of wisdom or of God working behind the scenes or all of the above, we don't know, but that's how it worked out. But it's funny how through the multitude God can make his will known. God can cause it to happen. So anything else? Okay, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for this passage that we've been in today, Lord, and how it guides and directs us, Lord, on what our focus should be and 
how to deal with issues and problems. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, it's been a help and a blessing to those who've been here and an encouragement to them. I thank you for everyone who's gathered out here today. I just pray that you would uh, do a work in their hearts and, and use this time to draw them to you, Lord. And Lord, I just pray, help us as a church, Lord, to uh, to prioritize, to guard unity and to seek your will. And Lord, help us as a church to be a light and a witness to this place you put us in. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.